the Fun to Use podcast, and welcome to Season 2. I'm your host, Greg Popst. Today's guest is Eros Resmini. Eros speaks about the early days growing up in Silicon Valley and how he naturally gravitated towards startups and entrepreneurship. Eros launched his career at Hewlett-Packard through an MBA rotational program before joining a gaming platform company run by Jason Citron called OpenFaint. OpenFaint was eventually sold to a Japanese company called Gree for $104 million. Eros then went on to help shape Discord in an operational role as chief marketing officer. Finally, he fell back to his roots of helping young startups grow through his group called the Mini Fund, focused on angel investing and advisory functions. Eros Resmini, nice to meet you and nice to have you on the podcast. Really appreciate you taking the time. Um, let's launch it off. So how did you become interested in, in venture capital, investing, uh, finance, all of the above? Yeah, you know, for me, uh, growing up in a little town called Palo Alto, it was almost impossible to escape technology and tech and startups. Uh, I guess sort of immersed in that uh, culture, whether you like it or not, in Palo Alto. So I think that was probably my first exposure. And uh, as I got older and started to get into the work world, I quickly gravitated towards uh, startups, which, which of course, means venture capital, too. Yeah, of course. And so growing up, what was it like growing up in Palo Alto? Obviously, you're surrounded by uh, tech entrepreneurs and and people with ideas that are probably out of the box and and a little different. Yes, yeah, it's, it's different for sure. You know, and, and I think growing up there at the time, I probably didn't realize how different it was. I was in my own little bubble thinking everyone grew up the way I grew up, um, like like many people. You know, the story I love to tell people is in my high school, which is Palo Alto High School, uh, we had two computer labs. Um, one computer lab was furbished by the Hewlett and the Packards, and the other one was furbished by the Jobs. So we had a fully equipped HP, all the latest, greatest, cool stuff you could imagine computer lab, and a fully equipped uh, Mac and Apple lab. Um, and I think that sort of exemplifies the kind of environment that we grew up in. You know, I was in choir with the Hewlett and the Packard grandchildren and uh, Lisa Jobs. So <laughs> oh, wow. you're definitely sort of part of the whole uh, the whole sort of uh, ecosystem there of startup people um, just growing up in the in the public school system. Makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and it must have been motivating being around all of those, you know, super successful people, even at that time, I, I imagine, but also even today. Yeah, I mean, again, sort of when, you, when you're growing up in it, I think at least for me, I was a little oblivious to it and probably more excited about, um, you know, the next cool party that I was going to get to go to <laughs> and, and not really realizing how lucky I, I really was. Um, but yeah, somewhere along the line, I think you learn small lessons about what it's what it means to be entrepreneurial and what it means to be in an environment that supports um, entrepreneurs and new ideas by default. Um, I think that's a very unique thing about the Silicon Valley that um, now that I've had a chance to grow up and see the rest of the world and see other environments that are trying to recreate what the Valley has, uh, you really, really begin to appreciate uh, what a unique place it is. Absolutely. So. What was that? Do you think that uniqueness of about it, and the is it is it the draw always monetary, or is it is it rewarding in itself of being being an entrepreneur and the adventure of starting something, the adventure of building um, building a business, building a company, and and seeing how people kind of grow. Yeah, you know, in my experience, everyone's a little different. I think in terms of what attracts them to to venture and startups, whether it's as an operator or someone who's who's sort of on the money side of things, or in my case, both. Um, so I can speak personally, you know, I, I've always been in it for the ride. Uh, I've always been in it for the adventure. Um, you know, many of the companies, if you look at, at my, my history in startups, um, many of them are ones you might not have picked to be successful out, out of the gate. Um, so it really was about being excited about a, about a particular space or being excited about a particular team um, and just just wanting to go on that ride and not necessarily focused on the outcomes of that ride, just sort of enjoying it day by day, moment by moment. Interesting. Yeah. So so I guess so you, you grew up in Palo Alto, you went to Palo Alto High School. Um, what's next? How did you decide kind of where, what you were going to do uh, in life or, or where you're going to go? And I guess we'll get to that in a minute. But um, w was there a catalyst? Was there a mentor or a mentee or 
or something that sort of um, drove you to a certain outside of obviously being, you know, growing up in Palo Alto and wanting to to be part of that community. It's um, was there anything that that kind of pushed you a certain direction? Uh, you know, I, I've definitely been a very shoot from the hip um, reactionary person my entire life. It, you know, through various stages of my career and growing up, people have always asked me what my plan was, and, and my answer has always been unequivocally been, I'm not sure, but I'll figure it out along the way. Um, and so, you know, coming out of Palo Alto, you know, just even talking about undergrad, I, I, I went and visited this tiny little liberal arts college called the University of Puget Sound. Um, I loved that there was this opportunity to learn all sorts of stuff and still get a college degree at the end of the day. Um, and I loved that it was small and I needed to get out of the Bay Area at the time. And so I went for it. It didn't hurt that I was really into playing rock music at the time too. And, and <laughs> Seattle was, you know, popping off as the coolest place to make music at the time. So of course on my weekends, that's where I was jetting off to, you know, in between classes and stuff. Um, so yeah, it was, it was very sort of gut based. This felt like the right place for me to go. And, and that theme just permeates throughout almost my entire career. Great. Yeah. And so, so did you have your own band? Were you part of a band at all? Or, or oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a funny thing I used to tell a lot of folks that I've managed and worked with over the years was if you met me in, in my twenties, you'd have no idea that I was going to go on to, to do, <laughs> uh, you know, the entrepreneurial stuff that I ended up doing or the VC stuff I ended up doing. Uh, you know, I was a long haired pseudo crunchy granola kid that really liked rock music and, and was all about playing in bands. I, I sometimes question how I graduated from college. Um, somehow I got a degree at the end of it all. <laughs> but I was very much convinced I was going to be, you know, the next big rock star coming out of college. And, um, you know, it had some really interesting knock-on effects later in my life that I can sort of, in hindsight, see now. But but at the time, I had no real plans to, to be a startup guy. Interesting. So after you graduated, you moved on, um, you know, you eventually did an MBA, but in those in-between years, what, what did you do? Where did you, where did you go? What was it, what was it like kind of your, did you get into like a career role or did you try and start something or, or what was that like? Yeah. So pretty early on in my career, I was, I was, um, sort of oscillating between realizing that I probably wasn't going to be, um, a rock star and, and, and starting <laughs> to also realize that I, I maybe liked, um, expensive things in my bed more than I liked um, not having any money and being in a tour bus. Uh, and it was right around that, that time that I realized it was probably a good idea to get a real job. Um, so I joined a few very small sort of startup situations playing, playing in the, the healthcare space, mostly like early electronic medical records. Um, and pretty quickly realized I was, I was good at marketing. I was good at business development. I was good at talking to people good at understanding their needs, um, good at positioning product. Uh, so I joined a few of those and, and had moderate success there. And I think pretty quickly realized I really like startups more than, than I, than I thought I would. Uh, I liked the creativity of it. I liked uh, the rush of it. Uh, I liked the fact that every day you walked in the office, you had no idea what was going to happen and you still needed to make good with your time, uh, which funny enough is not too unlike creating a new song or, or writing, writing something with a band. Um, so yeah, I got into that and and was going swimmingly well until until the dot bomb days and and then you know like everybody else I had to reevaluate whether startups yeah. were a good idea or not. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah so that, that go ahead, go ahead. Sorry, no, I was I was going to say that de that definitely the time period really um you know you can ride the wave and everything's great, but um what shows kind of the true test is is when things aren't going so great <laughs> for the rest of the world and what you do with it, right? Yeah, and that, that was the wild thing, right? You know, I, you 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 loving this, you're doing the startup thing, and then in the Bay Area at the time, all of a sudden, you went from being the cat's meow and the coolest kid on the block because you're part of a startup, to effectively being ostracized uh, by most of the established companies out there. Uh, you know, they sort of looked at startup um, employees as as folks that really didn't get it. Uh, as folks that screwed up the economy for those of us that were behaving properly. Uh, and so it was right around that time that I realized that if I wanted to still have a job, uh, I was going to need to sort of remarket myself, reposition myself, 
uh, from being, you know, a pure startup guy to, to, to maybe having uh, a more traditional background. And, and I decided to go back to school and get an MBA at that time. Um, and it ended up being an amazing experience. I learned a ton from it, um, but it definitely wasn't like I was saying earlier, wasn't necessarily part of the original plan. Yeah. And I, I feel like that's one of the big draws for MBAs is it'll, it gives you, it's one of the few times in life I, that it's easy to, or easier to reposition yourself or to tell a different story, right? Like if you're going one direction, you can rotate over to a different, different one. Um, when I think about MBAs today, there's so many MBAs that I, I almost think it's, it's, you know, blown up a little too much. But um, in terms of a, a tool to, to, as you say, reposition or rotate into something different um, or tell a different story, then I, I think it still makes sense. Yeah, I mean, that was certainly my thinking. Um, you know, in the, the kind of program I went into was a, a part-time program where the classes were mostly held at night. So I was still able to work a bit. Uh, and interestingly enough, that was also the time that uh, I, I ran into uh, a recruiter from Hewlett Packard that um, liked my background. Sort of, we got along well, and offered me a position to do a, an MBA rotation uh, at HP, um, which I look back as being one of the pivotal moments in my career, where not only did I did I you know find a job, <laughs> but I also uh, had a chance to really experience what it was like to work in a larger company environment uh, in a way that most people don't. And, you know, for, for those of your listeners that don't know, MBA rotations allow you to spend one to three months in a department uh, of a large company, uh, usually under the tutelage of, of a relatively senior person. So, you know, I spent time in HR, I spent time in finance, I spent time in business development, I spent time in marketing, I spent time in product operations, all spanning the course of about a year and a half while I was getting my MBA. So I, I was learning all this stuff, you know, every day. And then at night, I would go to school and I would study this stuff. Uh, and it was one of those moments in my career, based on all these things, where, where I, I really had one of those sort of step function learning moments and really started to understand a lot about what it meant to run a good company and be part of a good company and structure a good company. Uh, yeah, so it ended up being a, a really cool experience for me. Sounds like it. Sounds very rewarding. And, you know, I had some friends that were in rotational um, programs, pre, not not MBA, but pre-MBA with um, Carnival Cruise Lines and some of the stuff in, where I'm based in Miami. And um, you can definitely see the the broad picture of of the company itself and how everything's run and how it's all inter interconnected, right? Which which um, definitely changes how you how you view things, how you how you look at a a, a job as more than just that one task and, and looking at how everything kind of works together. So it's definitely interesting. Yeah, it was it was. I mean, you know, and tough lessons too, right? You know, Greg, one of the one of the craziest things that happened to me as a as an MBA intern is I was given a spreadsheet. Uh, that had roughly 2,000 names on it. And I was told to do an analysis and decide uh, which jobs should get cut off of this spreadsheet. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's definitely um, a, a job for a C-suite executive or you know, grooming you for that kind of level where you have to make those tough decisions. Yeah, and, and when the emotional piece too, right? Not only yeah. are you sort of, uh, I, I think, you know, learning some of the, the techniques to try and make object, objective decisions in a situation like that. But you're also learning for the first time how to deal with the emotional element of drawing a line on the spreadsheet and saying, everyone below this line is not going to have a job in three months. And, it, you know, to be in your 20s and to learn that lesson uh, as starkly as I did was was challenging, to say the least, but I think also formative. Yeah. So, Where'd you go from there? You stayed at Hewlett Packard for uh, at least a handful of years, right? And then eventually um, linked up and, and jumped back into the startup world. Uh, how did that happen? What what um, what led you to to that conclusion to jump back in? Yeah, well, at, at HP, I got blessed with an amazing opportunity to run business development uh, across um, their PC division. For all the partnerships that covered music, gaming, um, and video, 
So, you know, I cut the very first on-box deal with Pandora, for example. The first time they'd ever been installed on hardware was a deal that I did. Uh, <laughs> met with the early Netflix teams, uh, worked with all the major gaming publishers. Um, and and through that experience, not only did I did I realize I really loved the partnership side and, and sort of the business development side of, of, um, of a company, uh, but I also got to sort of scratch that itch that I, I maybe formed earlier in life around music and entertainment and gaming and the, the, those sort of topics that I was always already passionate about. Um, and in that process, I learned very quickly that gaming makes money and music doesn't <laughs> from, a, from a meta perspective. And video at the time was still sort of up and coming, right? Netflix really hadn't turned the corner the way I think it, you know, on-demand streaming is today. Mm -hmm. So I made the decision that I really wanted to get into gaming and I really wanted to get into gaming startups. And so uh, I left uh, HP sort of in search of a, of a role with a company that would let me, you know, use the skills that I developed, but also get into a sector that was maybe a little more focused on entertainment. And, and I picked games as, as my focus. Interesting. So, so you, you went searching for the, it, it, it's not like the, uh, the opportunity didn't kind of come across your desk and, and then you decided it was more, you went searching for that opportunity. I did. I did. I left, I left HP, um, you know, for a number of reasons. I, I certainly started to tire of some of the, the things that come along with larger companies, um, <laughs> and, and quickly remembered why I liked startups and the economy had started to sort of recover a little bit. And, and so that, that, that black sheep phenomenon around being a startup person had maybe faded a little bit. Um, and I, and I felt like I had the opportunity to just take my time and try and find something. Um, so, so yeah, I went searching and eventually, uh, stumbled upon a little company called open faint, um, that was thinking about building an Xbox live experience on this little known device called the iPhone. Um, and at the time, most of my friends and, and mentors and, and people I respected thought it was the stupidest idea of all time to place a bet on this thing called a smartphone. Um, if you re rewind back in time, that w was a very new concept. The idea that you'd have a touchscreen in your pocket, the, the idea that you'd have a high power device in your pocket. There had been many attempts at creating something like that that had failed previously. And, and people were pretty convinced at that time that you really just wanted a phone that you could make phone calls on and maybe have a few apps like a map. And that was it. Yeah. Uh, so it was a risky bet, uh, but it ended up being a fantastic play. Uh, we rode the wave of, of mobile gaming sort of when, when the iPhone got popular, we rode the wave of Android coming on scene, learned a ton about what it means to build a company from scratch. Um, and what was effectively a not friendly, uh, you know, startup environment that you know fundraising was actually quite difficult at that time so it was a, it was a fun little ride there yeah when, when when you joined how many how many employees were there do you remember <laughs> when i joined open fate uh, i think i was employee 10 maybe nine and and the very first business employee um <laughs> the, this the story i tell uh, people which you know and if you if you know anything about about open fate it's the same co-founder uh, as Discord, which is a company I ended up joining later. So uh, Jason mm -hmm. Citron was a very young man when I first met him. And uh, he, uh, I tell the story that, that the first day of the office, I came to the office and he opened the door and sort of peeked outside and said, oh, bleep, shut the door. And I sort of stood out in the hallway wondering what was going on. Uh, and then a few minutes later, he, he sort of came back out, he opened the door, kind of stepped through it, closed it behind him so that the people inside couldn't see what was going on. He said, okay, Eros, here's the deal. Uh, I forgot you were starting today. Um, there are some investors here that are interested in investing in the company. So I need you to be the VP of business development right now. Is that okay? And I said, <laughs> sure, that sounds great. I'll be the VP of business development. And he opened the door and I walked in and sitting on the floor, like a typical startup, it was mostly engineers. There was basically no furniture for a meeting. So everyone was sitting on the floor uh, in a small circle um, were DNA executives that became our investor, uh, Peter Rellin, who was our chairman and, 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 chief, and sort of chief executive helper <laughs> for yeah. the company, one of our angels. Um, 
and we negotiated the first investment in the company on my very first day there. Um, wow. It was an amazing experience, and it is it is such a great story to illustrate what it means to be part of a young startup. You just you just got to roll with whatever happens that day, even if it's your first day. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely a memorable first day. I'm sure you you probably never forget that one. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, so what was the, what was the vision like the growth? Like, was that, you know, obviously it, it's, it's rewarding as we we've talked about motivating to be part of, but, um, I'm sure there's some growing pains along the way as well. And as with every company, um, what did you find, you know, you gravitated to, you really enjoyed the most and what, what didn't you enjoy as much? Yeah. I mean, so it, it was my first time working with uh, a founder that was highly, highly technical. Uh, Jason mm-hmm. is a, a engineering um, savant. He's a product savant, um, but he was very new to working with a business person. So here you had effectively the two of the main people in the company that were coming from completely different perspectives in terms of how to communicate, in terms of how to structure your thinking. Um, and I think for Jason and I, those first few months uh, were just a challenge to figure out how to communicate with each other. There was even a phone call I had with him one day where I was fully convinced he was going to fire me because we just were not on the same wavelength. Uh, but we, you know, we eventually figured out um, how to communicate well together. And and I think as a as a young founder and a founding executive, which was my role, learning how to develop communication lines with people that come from different backgrounds is an incredibly important skill. And and we were lucky to have Peter Rellin there as a mentor to actually help mediate some of these these areas of, of tension um so eventually you know we ended up doing very well in terms of launching an sdk that helped game developers uh who were at the time only building native apps for the phone uh, all of a sudden have a plug and play option for creating things like leaderboards and matchmaking um, all stuff that required server-side uh coding knowledge and, and most game developers at that time on iphone and android did not have that so the, the company took off. Um, you know, we for a long time there, we used to be very proud of the fact that we would ask our developers to put this little green leaf on their apps <laughs> if they were using this app called OpenFaint. Um, and so, you know, this is something that, that I think Apple doesn't really allow anymore. But at the time, you you could on your little app badge put a little green leaf, and and we had at a point in time something like half of the top apps in the app store. Wow. So you would go down the list of the app store and you would just see all these little green leaves. And it was, it was obviously there's some marketing brilliance there. Um, yeah. But it was also a really cool moment for the company. We ended up selling the company um, because of competition, actually. Um, a, a little known thing for us at the time, but, but probably very, very well known to, to VCs is something called platform risk, uh, which means if you, you know, invest in building your technology on top of someone else's platform, there is inherent risk because they can choose to stop you from doing what you're doing or copy what you're doing or something along those lines. Um, and I don't think that that when we were building OpenFaint, we really knew platform risk or thought there was any real platform risk. Well, we were wrong. And Apple decided to create something called Game Center. Uh, Game Center was basically a clone of, of OpenFaint. I mean, it was it was word for word what we were doing, um, yet it came with the fact that it was from Apple and it was pre-installed on the devices and all the things that platforms can do. Hmm. And and we completely lost it. I mean, we were so scared, I think, for, for a solid month or two there just trying to figure out what to do uh, because we, we saw very clearly once Apple launched this that they could eat our lunch. They could just completely yeah. take this business we built and take it away. Well, we pivoted a little bit and, and started to become a cross-platform play, which means we were supporting both um, Android and iOS. And, and that ended up being a real savior to the company. But I don't think it ever took away our fear that yeah. Android could do the same thing or Apple and Android could do something similar to, that would really cut us off the knees. So we ended up selling the company to a Japanese company called Gree. Um, and I am spending a few years as an executive there after the acquisition. Got it. And and so the Japanese company, what what was their kind of? Do you, do you remember what their mentality was on the platform risk, or were they less? You know, were, were they branching into new areas in in that side of the world, or or how how did they think of that? 
Yeah, it was a little bit more of the latter. So, you know, Gree, uh, if you sort of zoom out and do your research, uh, was a Facebook-like platform in Japan focused primarily on uh, feature phones uh, and social games on feature phones. So they took what, you know, sort of Western people would know as sort of Facebook style games uh, and put them on, you know, phones that did not have large screens. And they built quite a, a big business doing this uh, and were, were quite successful in Japan. Uh, and I think they had ambitions to try and bring some of their knowledge worldwide. I think they also noticed that they didn't have any presence on smartphones which were quickly becoming uh, a dominant force in the mobile phone world. And so I think OpenFaint for them was a strategic acquisition to one, get a foothold in that space and to expand out outside of Japan. So, you know, they believe that they could create a platform on top of a platform. They had done that successfully in Japan on, mm -hmm. on carrier handsets. So I, I don't know that they saw the platform risk. I think it, it is what you sort of alluded to. It was a, a strategic expansion. Um, and it was, it was an amazing learning experience. I, I mean, I, working for a Japanese company as an executive coming from sort of Western style, uh, management, it, it was, was different. And, and I learned a ton about, about how to work in, in sort of Eastern Western style environments. Yeah. I think, um, my, my, my dad actually, um, worked in the texting more in the manufacturing chip manufacturing and stuff. And I, I remember him telling me stories about going to Japan and around that time period. Um, and it, I can't remember if it, did he say it was, it was more horizontal sort of structuring of, um, of companies versus, versus the vertical sort of the CEO heading and then, you know, the VPs and then kind of under there. I can't remember if that's, 100% correct, but I, I think I remember him saying that. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the structure is quite hierarchical. Um, and yeah, there's a lot okay. of sort of division-based sort of organization. Um, and then the communication styles and work styles are just quite different. Uh, yeah. And, you know, when you're trying to build an international company that come from, from quite different cultures, that can be challenging. I mean, that story has been told a thousand times. So we weren't the first uh, to tell it or experience it, but um, it was a learning experience for us having having never, you know, managed a team in Japan before, that was brand new for me. Yeah. Uh, you know, I started yeah. managing simply just the, the, the open faint uh, sort of platform, but eventually grew to manage um, a number of different divisions uh, in the company, including some of the European and, and Japanese uh, pieces. Interesting. So you got your international experience. <laughs> I did. I did. <laughs> yeah. It was a, a very, very intense version of learning. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, so from there, eventually, um, you moved over to Discord. Um, same founder. Did you just kind of did he tap you on the shoulder and say, you know, I need your help over here, or or how did that work? Yeah, it was something like that. There was a there was a small um, stopover, I would say, in Angelland. After I left Gree, I was okay. very much burnt out on working. I was a little bit burnt out on the gaming industry. And Peter Rellin, who I, I mentioned earlier, was the, yeah. the chairman at uh, at OpenFaint, uh, was was running a, a small angel and incubator fund, and he asked me if I'd come over and help some companies. And that quickly turned into uh, becoming a partner and and helping uh, mentor and do investments with the company. It was a great experience. Spent about three years there, and one of our investments um, was a little company called Hammer and Chisel, uh, which was founded by Jason. Hammer and Chisel was actually the precursor to discord uh it was a mobile moba so think league of legends for the ipad yeah um and and so you know i'm i'm not a gaming content guy jason has always secretly i think wanted <laughs> to build games and so he was taking stabs at this and i was advising him and helping him but it certainly wasn't my forte um so it wasn't really until they sort of tried and failed at the hammer and chisel title uh, realized I needed to pivot and pivoted to Discord that Jason and I started to spend a lot more time together again um, because I love platform plays. OpenFaint was a platform play. You know, Discord mm -hmm. is a platform play. Um, and, and yeah, I went from advising him a little bit to um, him asking if I would join, uh, which I did uh, one out of, out of sort of loyalty and love for Jason and, and two, to, to help the company, you know, I, I had to make a choice to leave the angel investment firm and join a company as an operator, which um, 
for any of your viewers who have experienced that, that's a big choice. It's actually sort of pivoting back to, to operating is significant. So that's how it started. It was really sort of moving from advising a company to deciding to help operate it. Great. Interesting. So from there, I mean, looking back, you know, even after we'll, we'll get to kind of more your, your, your jump back to angel investing, I guess, but, um, mm-hmm. Is there is there a moment at any point in your career that you kind of all of a sudden felt successful? Is there a point where you're like, all right, I've made it? Or or is it always sort of building on and and building into new areas and looking for the next thing? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I get that question from people a lot. Um and and I, I ultimately think the answer to that is a very personal question, obviously. Absolutely, um, yeah. You know, for me, um, Yes, there's there's been some success in my career. There's no doubt, um, and I'm feeling blessed about that. But I, I think I tend to measure my personal successes more around my children and my partner and and those personal things and the work stuff. If it if it didn't go as well as it went, I, I probably would still feel successful on those other fronts. <laughs> so yeah. it's just an interest. It's sort of an interesting thing when you really sort of look at the whole self. Um, but but certainly. Having sold OpenFaint, which was a a two-year turnaround on a company, on a $17 million raise, we exited at $104 million. Mm -hmm. Um, At that point, I sort of had that feather in my cap and I thought, okay, I I have done it. I built or helped build, I should say, a startup, sold it successfully. and, and so, yeah, I mean, having one go well is most entrepreneurs' dreams. Um, having one kind now, of full cycle, right? That's full the big cycle, full cycle that, you know, everything, mm-hmm. the liquidation, everything. Now, having had a chance to participate and join the ride at Discord as an advisor and, and then as an operator and then back to an advisor. Um, yeah, it's kind of crazy at this point because Discord is one of those very, very special companies that has gone uh, the, the long, long distance um, and still has plenty of room to grow. So, so yeah, at this point, it's just silly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's silly fun on that side. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I use the word successful, not, you know, monetary success, but success sure. all around for that reason, because I know that, you know, monetary, yeah, everyone, everyone wants to make money and everyone wants to, you know, that for a lot of people means that they're successful, but it, success is, is multifaceted, I think, in, in terms of, you know the the monetary reward of of going full cycle with open faint is probably um great but also the reward of seeing something you've built go f- full cycle right and 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 all the way to the point where someone believes in what you've built so much that they want to buy it from you um you know it means a lot too yeah it's interesting you say that greg cuz my reaction when you sort of change change the framing a little bit or add more color to the framing of your question is if you sat down with Jason and I and we were having a couple of beers and just chatting, we would tell you that Open Faint was a failure. <laughs> um, we would tell you that uh, we made some real mistakes along the way in terms of how we built the team, how we scaled the team. The level of adoption was never where it should have been. The company was actually positioned probably to be one of the largest distributors of mobile ads for games in the world. And we sold it for a fraction of what it could have been. Yeah. So, so like, if I was really to zoom out, I would say, sure, we made some money on on OpenFaint. We got out before we lost our shirt, but it was a failure. Um, using your new framing, I would look <laughs> at Discord as a over-the-top, way beyond our wildest dream success because the number of people that use that platform on a daily basis and the way it's touched those people's lives is incredibly rewarding. Um, yeah, I mean, just I'll get emotional talking about how rewarding <laughs> that one's been. It, so from that measure, Discord has been an incredible success. Um, Absolutely. And I think it still has more legs. That's the crazy thing. I think it has so much more room to go. Yeah, which, um, I mean, I used it the other day. I use it um, playing uh, Call of Duty Warzone with with friends. It's great. It's awesome. um, I love it. So, so the... Uh, you know, this past year has obviously been crazy with with COVID, with the pandemic and and the shutdowns. Obviously, you see um, companies like Zoom that are have been you know thrown into the spotlight, super you know successful in a way where they go viral, sort of, and and you have so many people using it in the business community, and 
and um, and personally, right? Uh, talking to family that you don't see very often, et cetera. Uh, I feel like Discord has that ability or or to to do the same thing. And do you think that you know they they do in some ways do the same thing, but for mostly the gaming community, do you think they've missed the opportunity, or do you think there's you know room for them to grow into these different spaces? Yeah, I, I definitely think there's room to grow. You know, Zoom to me is a business utility that's that's got a consumer bend to it now because of the pandemic. Yeah. But ultimately, I think it's a business utility, uh, and good for them, and great for them, and and it's amazing. You know, you can do everything right um, and totally fail in startups, and you can do everything wrong and totally succeed in startups. I mean, it's just crazy. They they nailed it on timing because um, they're clearly not the first video conferencing no. platform to show up. So, so they, there was definitely some luck in there. Um, you know, I would say that Discord's actually capitalized on on the opportunity in similar ways, but in different ways. You know, D- Discord mm-hmm. does video chat, does voice chat. Uh, but ultimately what Discord about, is about is community. And, and yeah. when, you, when you frame community as being, you know, me and my, my friends playing Call of Duty um, yeah. or, you know, you know, Ninja's huge community of, of folks that watch his YouTube and, and Twitch channels, um, you can start to understand how powerful that platform is because it actually supports both equally well. Um, yeah. And it will it will be a different type of adoption curve because of that, uh, because it will slowly but surely sleep, seep into all of these various communities because it's the best community management tool in the world. Um, and it will take time because it, as you point mm. out, it's, Many, for many people, Discord is associated with gaming still, and I think the company's trying really hard to help people understand that. Yes, we, you know, Discord started as a gaming company, but it actually does an amazing job supporting any kind of community. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think it's going to be a slower ramp, but I think they got a lot of um, a lot of new usage um, because of the ping- pandemic, the same way Zoom did. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's so much, as you kind of say, there's so much more room to expand into different verticals and different areas as people kind of push that gaming aspect of it to the back of their heads or, or they, or they say, well, you know what? At the end of the day, the, the, the speed and accuracy and uh, quality of the uh, community side of it, you know, that's what we like. And, and, and we can use it over here and we can use it over here and we can use it in all these different areas. It's, yeah, you know, I, I feel like looking back at at um, companies like Discord is is always interesting to to think of. You know, they're I, I'm sure Discord's going to reinvent itself another three or four times over the next ten years, right? I mean, I yeah, imagine I, so. I think that's what they want to do. I think you're right, yeah. and and I think I think it's going to be a cool ride for them. You know, I'm super excited yeah. for that team to go on that ride and. I hope that they can do it without losing track of their gaming roots because I, I think the reason they got yeah. to to where they got to, the reason we got to where we got to was because of gaming uh, and understanding that gaming and my experience has led technology and technology adoption for the last 20 years. People sometimes have a hard time admitting it, but it's pushed graphic processing, it's pushed video conferencing, it's pushed streaming, it's pushed everything more than any other sort of technology habit that we have so um yeah i'm not surprised that it would sort of push community and community communications as well yeah cool so what do do you think about companies that you know they expand rapidly and have massive user bases and and haven't quite monetized yet i mean i think facebook early days instagram early days before they had ads and things do you think the valuations are overblown sometimes or do you think the valuations are are more um you know, future looking and, and saying, look, when we do monetize on this, they're going to be, you know, we're going to be, be able to turn a profit and make, you know, a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that question is going to constantly be debated for a <laughs> long, long time, as long as people continue to fund these companies. You and I could probably right now come up with a list of 10 companies that are extremely overvalued <laughs> right now. They should not be getting the valuation or the investment that they have because they haven't monetized. And then you, we could come up with an equally compelling list of 10 companies that, man, we wish we would have invested yeah. <laughs> earlier on when they were supposedly overvalued, but we would probably would have hundred extra our dollars if we had invested yeah. at the right time. So, so I, I think it, it ultimately boils down to the following, which is um, you can build a business that monetizes well over time. If you can retain a large audience, 
Mm-hmm. Um, you can also completely screw up a business <laughs> that has a large audience that doesn't monetize well. And, and so then it really boils down to, you know, what's the market, what's the team, you know, how well can they execute? Um, yeah. and, and less so about that sort of, um, that, that style of company building. Yeah. Interesting. So moving forward, um, what are you doing now? What are you working on now? What is, um, you have something called the mini fund. Uh, w- w- tell me about that. What, what's, yeah. uh, what's that all about? Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I left Discord uh, in October of uh, 2019, uh, really with the, the intent to get back to Angel, you know, as, as we talked mm-hmm. about. I, I sort of jumped into Discord sort of <laughs> luckily um, and not with a tremendous amount of, of, of pre-planning. So getting back to Angel was important for me. Um, and I like working with young companies. And so the mini fund really is, is built for that. Um, I spend time uh, very closely with the companies I invest in. I, I take uh, both a sort of an advisory role and an angel role. Um, I, I really like to work with founders the same way I worked with Jason when he was building Discord in the early days and, and be a thought partner. Um, and so I, I I pick, you know, 10 to 20 companies a year and I spend time with them. And I've got a few folks that work with me doing the same thing. And um, yeah, we just have a blast with them. And and so we're just doing angel investment and advisory stuff uh, with the mini fund these days. Great. So how do you find these companies, these uh, 10 or 20 companies a year? Is it referrals, word of mouth or networking, you know, accelerators? Yeah, it's almost 100% word of mouth. Um, I've been lucky enough in my career to have you know been around block a few times in the the areas I like to invest in obviously gaming being one of them um, that um, people who know me and trust me and understand what I can do and how I can help companies are, are bringing great companies to me constantly so I have the the enviable position of, of having to turn down companies more so than having to try and find them um, and because it's a relatively small group of companies that we work with on an annual basis um, you know we don't have a lot of sort of funnel problems in terms of, of uh, flow, like some of these larger funds might have. Yeah, it makes sense. So what are, what are, can you talk about some of the most exciting investments you've made or is most exciting kind of um, companies you've advised on through, uh, through the angel side? Yeah. Well, you know, one of the, my, my ones I'm really proud of, cause we, you know, we started it sort of early last year with a company called Parsec. Uh, Parsec was, out there trying to build sort of a cloud gaming, cloud streaming experience for consumers. So, you know, take the computer that you've got at home, it's got plenty of GPU uh, horsepower and use it to stream uh, a cool indie game with a friend, uh, you know, across the way that doesn't have that same power and, and you know, play something fun together. Uh, they, they started building it. Uh, it was going reasonably well, but then they quickly realized um, through adoption and, uh, and looking at the data that a lot of people were actually using it uh, for other reasons. Um, namely, people who are in game development or using uh, high-powered machines to create content uh, needed a way to access those machines uh, remotely, use them for demos, uh, any number of things. So the company pivoted to a B2B play. Um, they haven't completely let go of their consumer piece, but the, the B2B side is growing really well. And, and quite recently um, took on investment from Andreessen Horowitz and got a nice valuation along with it. So that's a really great story because I've been working with a team for a while, actually got to know them a little bit when I was still at Discord. Um, and and I, I really have enjoyed the founding team and enjoyed their story. Um, so that's probably my my most favorite right now. But there's a, there's a number of great ones. I've also put an investment in a company called uh, Odyssey Interactive. It's the former team that built Team Fight Tactics, if you follow the gaming oh, cool. yeah. world. Um, so, you know, they, they similarly, um, very early on in their process and, and learning about how to build a company, but tremendous uh, pedigree given their success uh, at Riot. So really yeah. excited to work with them to help uh, build a cool company and build new content. Cool. Um, so I guess from there, what, what do you think about kind of all the, all this talk about Californians moving or, or the Valley Valley's kind of crowd moving to Texas? Do you think it's going to shake things up a little bit? Do you think it's uh, overblown? What, what's your thoughts on that? Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, but the Valley, the, so the answer is, I, I don't really buy into it a whole lot, but this sort of shakeup has happened in the Valley as long as I've been here. <laughs> and I've been here a long time. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the Valley constantly has these little shifts and quivers and shakes. Um, and, and you know, entrepreneurs move away and companies move away or, um, you know, employee, and a whole swath of employees move away for whatever reason. Uh, but I think the heart of the valley continues to beat the way it's always always has, which is which is basically fueled by the fact that there are a lot of people here that have a tremendous amount of experience building companies, uh, and there's a lot of money here to back those companies. And I don't think that changes. Uh, and there's a tremendous amount of brain power um, that that I think still radiates from the valley. So yeah, sure. Cisco might leave and Elon decided he <laughs> wants to head over there. Uh, but yeah. that's, that, as far as startups go, that's pretty old school. Um, yeah. It's not, it's not the new blood. It's not the new thinking. And I hope, you know, honestly, I hope they make a little bit more room because <laughs> then, then that means there's more space for some of these younger companies to get come in here. And that's why yeah. I play anyways. Yeah, absolutely. If some of the, some of the bigger firms, right. Having their headquarters there make, doesn't make as much sense anymore because there's so many employees and so much real estate that they need. I mean, I kind of see it, but as you said, it makes room for smaller startups and more of that getting back to the roots of Silicon Valley. Uh, So. Yeah, yeah. I'm all for it. I celebrate it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's, it remains to be seen, uh, you know, just the same way as, you know, I'm in Miami and, and we see a lot of the New Yorkers and the financial firms moving down here, but, um, whether it's permanent, whether it's temporary, whether it's some and not others, who knows? Um, but, you know, things are changing uh, with the pandemic, which brings me to the next question is, you know, obviously the pandemic's been tough for a lot of people and a lot of people have had, you know, one of the worst years of their lives. Um, but with change, have the, there's always opportunities as well. And there's, um, you know, things like Zoom, obviously we've already touched on, but other companies that that kind of pop up that try and fill uh, a need like uh, food delivery and and local uh, you know my my um, uh, my one of my partners his wife started a company that curates local goods um, to people via uh, you know delivery and order order service so it's it's sort of an interesting time do you see a lot more opportunities than you saw in the past on the um, angel side. Um, you know, it, it had been a while since I'd, I'd gotten into Angel and I happened to get into Angel right when the pandemic started. So I don't know that I I have a real good A-B test to sort of describe here. But what, what I can say, though, is I have noticed a particularly interesting trend in what I would call uh, sort of old school traditional industries, and, namely uh, healthcare mm-hmm. and education. Uh, these are industries that that have constantly been ripe for innovation and disruption, but have been mired uh, by um, institutional challenges, uh, bureaucracy, any number of things that have kept them from adopting technology and moving forward uh, as sectors. And I think the pandemic has forced them forward, measured in in if not years, decades. Um, in terms of technology do- adoption and openness to new ways of doing things. And I find that to be extremely exciting, especially given some who I'm someone who cares deeply about consumer yeah. and, and consumer experiences uh, to imagine that I might be able to invest in a company that can change the way you interact with your doctor or change the way you interact with your therapist uh, and modernize that Um is exciting. And certainly, you know, I got three kids, so I'd love to see the education system also benefit from what technology can do. So that to me is the really exciting thing as an angel. There's this opportunity that literally wasn't there 12 months ago. um, And we have an opportunity to help those kinds of companies. Yeah, that's really interesting, too, obviously. And and that's a good point is education, I feel like is what drives, you know, not the next five years, 10 years, but the the next generation of, of, um, entrepreneurs, the next generation of of business uh, founders and owners and employees, right? And so that to me, if if I was a, not to get into politics, but if I was a politician, that's where I'd want to put my thoughts and time and money into. Yeah, sure. 
Sure. So, well, I'm an angel and I want to put my thoughts and time and money yeah, into it. So here we exactly. go. <laughs> exactly. Do what you can, right? Yeah. So last question and then uh, and then we'll sign off. What advice would you give to someone uh, who has the entrepreneur hunger but doesn't know how to kind of how to start their own company, doesn't know how to break into that sort of uh, startup mentality, startup mode, um, you know, doesn't maybe not even has doesn't even has have an idea, but um, but wants to wants to do something. Yeah, that's a good question. I get I get that one a lot, too. Um, I'll answer it by sharing a little bit about my experience and then a little bit about how I think invest, smart investors think these days. So sure. um, I certainly had no idea I was going to be a startup person. I just sort of followed my passions along the way. Um, and, uh, you know, some of it was just out of necessity because I needed a job. But as, as we've talked about today, eventually I ended up in the entertainment uh, industry and in the gaming sector, which I've had passions around for a long, long time. And I think simply having passion around the work that you do, uh, you'll start to answer some of these other questions. I, I just, I think it's, it's natural. Um, and so I wouldn't worry too much about knowing how a cap table works or how to get investment or how to form a company. I would worry more about find something you can truly, you know, pour your heart and soul into and try to solve problems around that experience because you care about it. You'll have unique insights and unique abilities. And, and that, what I just described is something that most investors call founder market fit or founder mm -hmm. product fit, which is the idea that you should, as an angel, seek out people who are solving problems that they have unique insights and experiences in. And, and usually the reasons they have those unique insights and experiences is because they're passionate about the topic or passionate about the, the subject matter. Very insightful, very, uh, you know, very interesting way to look at it. And I, and I, I don't think it's uh, surprising either at the same time. But uh, great. Well, thank you, Eros. I really appreciate uh, the time, taking the time and, and being on the podcast and, and talking to all the all the listeners and viewers that that um, that want to learn more about the angel side. And, and it's kind of different. Normally, I have fund managers on on the podcast, but um, every couple episodes, I want to get someone with a different mindset, a different, unique set of experiences to, to speak about their past and background. So, well, I appreciate, really appreciate uh, the invitation, Greg. It was great chatting with you. Great. And that's it for today's show. I hope you found it insightful and entertaining. If you did, give us a like, follow, or subscribe on your favorite streaming or social media platform at Fun Views Podcast or funviewspodcast.com. Until next time.